At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to look deeper into 1 Peter, tuning into our current series, Unshakable, Steadfast Hope in an Unpredictable World. Join us as we allow God's Word to shape us and renew our hope with the brilliant truth of the gospel. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to those who judge, who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. It is right and it is true. You can go ahead and grab a seat. Growing up, Pastor Zach was a friend of my father's who pastored a church a few miles up the road from my dad's church. And one time, uh, Pastor Zach had the opportunity to travel overseas uh, to visit some work that God uh, was doing in, uh, in the Ukraine. And while he was there, Pastor Zach uh, met Pastor Stephen and kind of came back and told uh, this story to my dad. And Pastor Stephen was a pastor who was nearly 70 years old. He had served uh, in the Ukraine and actually prior to that in what was the former Soviet Union for almost 40 years of ministry. And as Pastor Zach visited with him, Pastor Stephen recounted how throughout his ministry he faced a tremendous amount of opposition and hardship, persecution, and suffering at, uh, at the hands of the communist uh, government. And when Pastor Zach uh, asked him about it and asked kind of, well, what was that like? Uh, Pastor Stephen said, well, it was normal. It was normal. Pastor Zach was a little bit confused as he tells the story. And when he was pressed to explain kind of a little bit of what do you mean by normal, Pastor Stephen told him, well, in our Russian Bible, it says all who live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Therefore, persecution is normal. Then he asked this question, does it say this in your American Bible? Sadly, I think for many of us in the North American church, we're prone to believe that things like persecution or suffering are not actually found in our Bible, and actually that they're not even meant to be part of our faith and what it means ultimately to be a Christian. Oftentimes, we're taught to believe that when we trust in Jesus, everything in our life should get better. Because Christianity is good and true, then if I'm a Christian, I should be accepted, I should be well-liked, I should be affirmed, I should be well-received within the world and the society around me. 
However, that story, that reality, that narrative doesn't actually come out of the scriptures too often. It comes out of a sense of our American triumphalism and a little bit of a church that has bought into the false prosperity gospel. And because of that, then, we believe that the good life in our world and society and too often in our church, that our, the good life here and now should be a life lived free of discomfort, free of rejection, free of any sort of persecution or suffering for our faith. But when we look at the scripture, what we see is that that stuff is actually tremendously normal for the people who follow Jesus. And so oftentimes, we need reminded that when it comes to the challenges in our world that we face, that these are actually very normal things. In fact, Jesus promised them to us. In John 16, Jesus would look at his disciples and he would say to them, in this world, you will have tribulation. That's a promise. A promise you can claim for yourself if you follow Jesus. That in this world, if you follow Jesus, you will have tribulation. We shouldn't be surprised. Jesus promised it, but he also promised, take heart, for I have overcome the world. But the problem is, we forget that the first half of that verse, and because of that, oftentimes when we face suffering, when we face persecution, when we face challenges, when we face unfair treatment in our society, we don't even know how to respond. Many Christians don't even know how to react to an inconvenience for their faith, let alone an outright opposition and persecution that so many face around the world and have faced throughout the history of Christianity. We don't always know what to do. But Peter's original audience, remember Peter wrote the letter of 1 Peter to encourage churches that were in the ancient Near East, living under the Roman Empire in what is now modern-day Turkey, Peter writes to encourage the churches, and he knows that many of them are facing the opposition and trials that come with following Jesus. And he wants to remind us that although these things might be normal, we can face them in such a way that we can, as we've said throughout this series, we can face them in a way in which we can live un shakable. In the verses preceding our passage today, Peter has been reminding the church and the people of God of their identity. If you remember a few weeks ago, we looked at the reality that in Christ we are a chosen people who have been given the purpose to go and to share Christ and to glorify God in and throughout the world, that this is the great high purpose of who we are as God's people. But he also reminds us that we are, as he says, we are strangers, aliens, exiles, sojourners, that although we belong to the kingdom of Christ, we have been located in the world. And because of that, we will often face opposition, persecution, challenges, hostility, and outright suffering for our faith. Because of this, Peter calls us to be the sort of people that abstain from evil, but actually seek to do good and to bring goodness into the world. And then in verse 13, he begins to shift, and he begins to take that call to do good and begin to apply it into various circumstances for his audience. The first place that he begins is how we relate to our governing authorities. And a couple weeks ago, we looked at that section. 
But in verse 18, Peter now makes a shift to begin looking at the household and the relationships within the household and how we should live as people who seek to live out our identity and our purpose within our homes. And he begins by addressing a specific, unique set of people within his context. The text says, if you look at verse 18, servants. Another way, or the probably just as equally way you could translate that word is the word slaves. Peter begins in verse 18 to begin to address household slaves. It was common in the Roman Empire for houses to have slaves and servants that would serve the masters and the people who were in the household. And Peter begins by addressing them. And I think it's important for us to just remind us a few things about Scripture when it addresses slaves, because oftentimes we can hear that and we filter it through kind of our modern lens, and it kind of can be a little bit disorienting. Because Peter will say, servants, be subject to your masters with respect. But there's a couple things we need to remind ourselves. One, ancient slavery is not directly equivalent to the North Atlantic slave trade or what was experienced in our continent in modern slavery. Where the North Atlantic slave trade was based on race, ancient slavery was actually based on either prisoners of war or oftentimes indentured servitude, people who would sell themselves into slavery to pay a debt. Now, this in no way means that slavery was somehow in the ancient Near East better. It was often a terrible life, although you could eventually, and many some did, could buy your freedom. It was still a horrible way to live. And so the Bible writes into a context where there were slaves. Now, it might feel odd then that Peter then says, well, slaves, be subject to your masters, right? We, we would think, why wouldn't you say, no, overthrow your masters. Be done with this. This is horrible. But we forget that Peter's actually writing to very small minority communities that are found throughout the Roman Empire. In any city, there were probably maybe a few dozen, at most maybe a couple hundred Christians in cities of thousands. Christianity did not have the sort of influence that we've experienced in our own day to be able to just throw off the social norms. So when Peter and Paul write to the churches, they write in a way to actually condemn slavery and call for its removal from the inside out. The New Testament never condones the practice of slavery. It never affirms it. In fact, Scripture doesn't at all if you read through its narrative. And what it does is it tries to undo it from the inside by promoting justice and equality. Even the fact that Peter would write and in his examples address slaves first is him heightening the dignity and worth, speaking to them as equal and valued members of the church on par with anyone else, which would have been unheard of in his society. And so he picks the lowest person in society and he elevates them to a place of example and an example that we all can learn from today. It might be odd for us then to look at a passage that addresses slaves and you might think, well, how are we supposed to then understand and allow this to help us within our own lives? Thankfully, we don't live in a society marked by slavery anymore. But we do all of us live in a society where we find ourselves in places where we must live under the authority of others. 
Maybe that's in our workplaces where we have bosses, supervisors, CEOs, executives who oversee us and have authority over our work and our jobs. For some of us, maybe we serve in the military or fire or police, where we have commanding officers, chiefs, people who direct us and lead us. Maybe we're in school and we have teachers. Maybe we're kids with parents. All of us, in some way, serve under authority. And while Peter speaks to those in society who are the lowest places of authority, what he teaches us in this passage is how you and I can live when we find ourselves under authority, when there is someone above us. And Peter gives a clear call. He says, be subject to those people in authority. He uses the word master. Now, he pulls the same idea that he said of governing authorities, that we are called to be submitted, to live under those people that are in authority over us. But he also clarifies that we're to live submitted with all respect. Peter addresses both our action and calls for obedience. He also addresses our attitude, that we are called to live in a way in which we respect those that are placed in authority over us. And then he gives in the passage this clarifying statement, which in many ways kind of ratchets up, ratchets up the tension within the command that he's calling for. Look at verse 18. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Peter knows that all of us, from time to time experience people who are in authority over us who treat us unjustly and fairly and unfairly. Have you ever had a bad boss? A bad teacher? I remember when I was in college and I worked in dining services for Kent State University. I had one of those bosses who was just miserable to work for and she made the whole place miserable. Unfair, cruel, harsh, rude. It was terrible. It's terrible to work for people who are just bad leaders, let alone those that would actively oppose us because of our faith. Many of us from time to time within our lives face those that will mock us, undercut us, keep us from being promoted, treat us differently maybe even be outright hostile because we are Christians. And Peter says that even those people we're called to be submitted to, even when they treat us unfairly. The way you are called to respond to people that God has placed in authority over you is not ultimately dependent on how you're treated. It's dependent on God's word. And in many ways, I think it leads us to kind of the big idea that we need to unpack this morning, which is this. If we seek to be people who genuinely do good in society, then at some point, believers in Christ will suffer for doing good. If we genuinely live in a way in which we live marked by the kingdom and the goodness that God calls for, at some point, we will suffer for doing good. Peter assumes that this is going to be the case that you're going to be treated unfair and unjustly at times. In many ways, it's that assumption that raises the question that I think probably all of us ask when we hear that kind of call. 
which is simply this. Why? Why should I endure suffering? Especially if I'm doing good. Especially if I'm trying to live the way God has called me ultimately to live. Why should I endure suffering for doing good? Especially if it's unjust. Especially when it's unwarranted. Why should I endure that? Well, Peter actually essentially is going to give us three reasons within this passage to help us understand how you and I can suffer well for doing good and why we're called to endure suffering for the sake of the gospel. You see the first reason given right away in verse 19. He says, for, right? So here's his first reason. For this is a gracious thing. What is? When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For Peter, what a gracious thing is, is that when we suffer unjustly and we endure the sorrow that comes with that, right? There's natural sorrow when you're being treated unfairly and unjustly. He says that this is actually a gracious thing. Now, he goes on to clarify what he means by suffering unjustly. He says, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it you endure, but if when you do good and suffer for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Peter clarifies what he means to endure suffering for good. He doesn't mean that if you sin, right? If if you're a bad employee, you always show up late, you do shoddy work, you act unprofessional, you seek to take advantage of your company, and then you're treated poorly, that's not enduring suffering for good, right? If you're a student and you don't turn your work in on time and you do the bare minimum and you don't follow your teacher's direction and you get an F, that's not unjust suffering. But if you're the best employee, If you seek to work for the Lord, not for human beings, and you try to do your best work, you're attentive, you follow directions, you do and serve to the best of your ability, and then you are treated poorly and unfairly. Well, that's when you experience unjust suffering. And Peter says that when we experience that unjust suffering, that this is actually a gracious thing. This is grace from God. Grace meaning just unmerited favor, that there is actually favor for you in unjust suffering. You think, how on earth can that be? Well, because Peter knows and he signals to us the biblical truth that God rewards those who suffer for good in Christ. He rewards them. You actually see this connection in the text, right? Peter repeats at the beginning and the end of these first two verses, this idea that it's a gracious thing. But in verse 20, he connects that idea of a gracious thing with what he says, the word credit. For what credit is it to you? Credit's this idea of reward or blessing or benefit. And what Peter's reminding us is that when we do actually suffer for good, there is credit, there is benefit, there is blessing that is given to us for that suffering. In many ways, Peter echoes the idea of Jesus here when he would say to his followers in Luke chapter 6, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. But love your enemies and do good 
and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. When you do good in the face of opposition, in the face of suffering, in the face of persecution, God promises reward. Both blessing and benefit that you will experience in this life, but ultimate reward in the life that is to come in his new creation. There is nothing that you suffer unjustly for that God will not make right in the end. And Peter knows this, and it's why he says when you suffer for doing good, there's actually grace there. And we, you and I, we must find the grace in the suffering that we experience, that God actually has blessing in it, both now and ultimately in eternity. So Peter says you can endure suffering for good because God will bless and reward you. The second reason Peter gives then in verse 21, he says, For to this you have been called. Again, to what? That same idea that he just communicated. When you do good and suffer for it and you endure, to that you have been called. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. Why can we endure suffering? Because of Jesus. You and I are called to follow the ways of Jesus through suffering. That he has set an example for us to follow. Now, this word example is a great word that Peter used when he describes the role Christ plays in helping us in enduring suffering. The original language, the word is hippogrammon. Hippo meaning under and grammon meaning writing, so under writing. And it was actually a word that was used for how teachers would teach students in Peter's day how to write the letters of the alphabet that they would teach students at the time by having them trace over the letters, that they would write under what the student then ultimately would write over. You know that if you've ever taught a child to do handwriting, that this is often the best way to teach them. If you're a parent right now schooling at home, you might have been doing this this week with your kindergartner, right? And what do you do? You get one of those little books that has all the little letters outlined with dashes, and then you give them a pencil, and maybe at first you hold their hand, and you work through them tracing over the letters, and then over time you teach them to trace over the letters, so eventually they get to the point where they can write the letters themselves. That's the method that was Peter's, essentially, that word is signaling that method. And what he's reminding us then is that when it comes to the way we pattern our lives, to how we trace and practice how we're called to live, that Christ has been that for us. That he is the lines that we trace our life over, over and over again, to learn to live the way he lived. And he's saying then he is an example. But not just an example, it's stronger than that. Karen Jobes, in her commentary in this passage, says this word suggests the closest of copies. English words such as example, model, or pattern are too weak. For Jesus' suffering is not simply an example or pattern or model as if one of many. He is the paradigm by which Christians write large the letters of his gospel in their lives. 
The way in which you pattern your suffering after Jesus' suffering marks and patterns your faith and trust in the gospel. And that's what Peter's saying. In his suffering, Jesus has set an example for them for how we suffer, that we are called to trace after his life. And it begs the question naturally that we all have to ask, whose life are you pattering after? Whose life are you tracing time and time again and going back to learn his ways, his practices, the way he engaged life? Because for the Christian, the ones we trace our lives after is not Tony Robbins or Jeff Bezos or whatever celebrity you want to fill in the blank. The place we go back to time and time and time again is Christ and learning how to live his way, following his example, especially in suffering. Because if you follow Christ at some point, you will face suffering he suffered you will face it the question is will you model yourself after his pattern so peter wants us and encourages us that we can endure suffering because we can follow christ's example and in the rest of the passage then he essentially gives us four kind of keys to help us understand how we follow christ's example you see the first one in verse 22 so as we follow his steps, he said, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So the first thing we see is that in his suffering, Jesus didn't sin or lie. He didn't use his mouth in a way to respond to suffering that would cause him to sin. How many of us, when we face, when we face any suffering, injustice, unfair treatment, how many of us immediately respond verbally? We complain, we whine, we speak down about the people who have treated us unfairly. How many of you have had a hard day at work where your boss was just a jerk and the first thing you did as soon as you got home was open your mouth to whine and complain about them? How many of us oftentimes when we experience inconvenience or suffering twist the story slightly to just make it seem that much worse, to focus more on about us than about the suffering that we've experienced. The reality is that this verse reminds us that Jesus didn't do any of that in the face of suffering. In fact, when we read the Gospels, he didn't open his mouth as a lamb sled to slaughter. And every time he was accused, he remained silent when he was unjustly treated. He not only didn't do that, it says in verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. So not only did Jesus not verbally respond, he didn't seek that those that treated him unjustly would receive that same treatment. Our model when we suffer unjustly is we want to get back at the people that treat us unfairly. We learn this from a young age. I see it in my kids. When one hits one, the one wants to hit back. We want equal treatment. We want eye for an eye. We want to fight fire with fire. But the example we see of Jesus in suffering is that he didn't even do this. He didn't even try to get back. In fact, when he hung in his worst, most painful moment on the cross, when he had the power in an instant to call down angels, he looked at those that were tormenting them and he said, Father, 
forgive them for they know not what they do. He suffered injustice. He endured it for us. How? How could he do that? Well, Peter gives us the answer. He says, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus could endure suffering because he trusted himself to God. He trusted and knew that God was righteous and good and just. That the evil that was done to him, ultimately God would vindicate him and vindicate those that treated him unjustly. Either through ultimately his sacrifice or ultimately their final judgment. And so because of that, Peter could step in, I mean, sorry, Jesus could step into moments of injustice and he could endure them silently, sinlessly, in a way in which he could endure that place and show the goodness of God through it. And we then are called to model ourselves after that example, to trust ourselves to God in the same way. Mary Wilson tells the story of the late Dallas Seminary professor Howard Hendricks, who one day relayed the story where he was on a plane waiting on a tarmac that suddenly experienced significant delay. And if you've ever been in a situation where you've been waiting on a tarmac for a plane to take off, it can be excruciatingly frustrating. And while Dr. Hendricks sat there observing this, he noticed that one of the other passengers continued to get more and more irritable as time went on, and that he began to then berate the stewardess that was serving the plane. Getting more angry, treating her more rudely, giving her all sorts of trouble. But Dr. Hendricks recounts the fact that he noticed that she continued to respond with utter professionalism, continuing to show grace and help time and time again as this passenger was rude to her. So finally, after they took off and landed, he waited a moment and asked the stewardess on the way out, he said, may I have your name? Because I would like to write to your airline and let them know the incredible way that you responded in this situation. He said that she responded kindly, thank you, sir, but I don't work for the airline. Confused, he asked her what she meant, and she said, I work for Jesus Christ. See, it's that sort of attitude, it's that sort of reality that entrusts ourselves to Christ, entrusts ourselves to God, that allows us to not only endure inconvenience, but endure hostility, rudeness, unfair treatment, and injustice. That's the example that we are called to follow. But it's not only an example that we're called to follow, it's also an exchange that we need to receive it's not enough for us to simply follow Christ's example. Because how can we, in our own strength, think of how many times in your life you've been inconvenienced for anything, let alone your faith, and how you failed to respond with the sort of grace and dignity and humility that we see in Jesus. No, it's not merely the example that we need to receive. It's something beyond that. And Peter reminds us of what that is in verse 24. He says, He, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, 
but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. If we're to endure suffering, we also need to focus on the overseer of our soul. We need to remind ourselves, not just the example of Jesus set, but what he has done for us, that we're able to follow that example. Peter draws in these verses from the Hebrew prophet Isaiah, specifically chapter 53, where Isaiah recounts the suffering servant, the one God will send who will suffer on behalf of the people that they might be restored to God. And Peter draws directly from that passage to describe and remind us that God in his grace has sent Jesus as an exchange that we might receive what is necessary to live out what he has called us to. Mary Wilson, in her commentary on this passage, says, Jesus, the suffering servant, must be our Savior before he can become our example. If we don't receive his substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf, his example crushes us. We will fail if we do this in our own strength. But the good news that Peter reminds us of is that Jesus has provided us, provided for us what is necessary. First, he provided a substitutionary sacrifice. Peter describes in verse 24 that Jesus bore our sins on his body. That you and I, we fail time and time again to live up to the way God has called us. Not only are they the ones who suffer unfair or unjust treatment, so often we're the ones who commit unfair and unjust treatment. We're the ones who in God's world bring the sort of things that cause the brokenness that we see around us because we ourselves are broken and rebellious apart from Christ. And we fail apart from him to live the way God intends for us to live. We're like sheep who've gone astray. Jesus, in his grace, he bore our sins, our failings, our rebellion in his body on the tree. And in exchange, he gave us something else. What did he give us? Look what he says, that we might die to sin. He gave us a death to sin and that we can live to righteousness. That we can live to God's ways and God's ideal and the right life that God calls us to. You cannot endure suffering for good if you do not embrace the saving work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. And not only did he bear our sins, he healed us. For by his wounds you have been healed. Jesus has brought healing to your souls in anticipation of one day when he will heal your body as he heals all of creation through his death and resurrection. God, in his grace, has covered our guilt and shame, rescued us from death, took all our injustice, all our disobedience, all our brokenness in his body on that tree so that you and I could be healed, whole, restored, given back the life that God intends for us to ultimately live. And it's this reality then that allows us to endure. It's his work that then gives us the power to live healed lives and endure unjust and unfair treatment. So friends, we are called to endure suffering for good, to be found faithful because of the example of our Savior and the accomplishment of our Savior on our behalf. And the question that I think we need to wrestle with today is will we continue to be faithful 
when we face suffering. You will face it. It has been promised to you. All who desire to live a godly life will suffer. Nick Rickman, in his book, The Insanity of God, tells the story of a Russian woman and her grandfather. The woman's name is Katya. And in 1917, when Katya was seven years old, her grandfather, who was a Protestant pastor at the time, got word that he was going to be arrested the next day. Scrambling to get his affairs in order, and then ultimately burying the family Bible in the backyard because he was afraid it was, getting, it was going to get confiscated, Katya's father was arrested. And Katya recounts that a few weeks later, the family was allowed to go visit the grandfather in prison to bring in some food and money and things to help him deal with the harsh winter. But as they went, the family had to line up on one side of a barbed wire fence while her grandfather stood on the other side. Each family got a few, or each family member got a few moments to say goodbye and to talk with him. And then finally, at the end of the line, the grandfather reached her grandmother. And she noticed that through the fence wall he, and through the barbed wire, he slipped a small piece of paper, which she grabbed quickly and hid on her person so the guard wouldn't confiscate it. Eventually, the family went home. And they opened up the piece of paper, which gave detailed instructions for where the family Bible was buried in the backyard. And not only to retrieve the Bible, but also the encouragement that they should gather the family and they should read the papers that her grandfather had left in the front cover of the Bible. As Katya recalls the story, there were about 30 of the family that gathered in the house when the time came for them. And she described her grandfather's letters as sort of a spiritual last will and testament to the family. And the very final thing that he wrote at the end of his letter said Katya, and this is her quote, is that his very last message to the family was that we should all read and forever remember Revelation 2.10. Here's what I require of you, that you should be faithful unto death. Her grandfather would go on to die in that prison, but 70 years later, as Katya wrote, counts this story to Nick. She was still struck by how many people in that time came up to her and thanked her for her grandfather's ministry and faithfulness. The impact that he had not only in his life as a pastor, but even in his faithfulness to death. How does one endure suffering even to the point of death and be found faithful in that moment? Friends, it's only when we remember that Jesus was faithful in his own suffering to death, that although he was the perfect, righteous son of God, that he was the only sinless human being, and although he faced mocking and ridicule, although he faced a false condemnation, although he suffered at unjust hands, he nonetheless was found faithful and endured all the way to the point of death to receive the joy that was set before him. And that joy is the salvation that he would bring to you and to me. 
the goodness that he would bring of redemption in that in this broken world and it's only then when we remember Jesus's faithfulness that it calls us and hearkens us to our own faithfulness to trust in his work on our behalf to follow his example you will face suffering in your life but you make the decision now and how you will face that suffering will you face it with Christ as your example, with Christ as your redeemer, with Christ as your safer savior, or will you face it in your own strength, your own way? My prayer for you this morning is that like Katya's grandfather and like our great savior, Jesus, you in your own suffering would be faithful unto death. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, We stop for a moment and together say thank you to you, that you, God, in your grace and kindness and love have given to us what we could never earn or accomplish for ourselves. The power needed to endure and face suffering. Thank you, Jesus, that you are faithful in your own suffering. Faithful all the way through to the end. That although you had the power at any moment to stop what was happening, you remained silent. You didn't revile. You willingly sacrificed yourself that we could be saved. So we say thank you. Lord, I pray for anyone this morning that is facing the opposition, the suffering, the hardship that comes within a life and a life of following you. I pray, God, that you remind them that they don't need to face that alone this morning, but that you have given what is necessary, that they can endure suffering for good, that there is a future reward promised for those that will endure in Christ Jesus, and that one day we will receive the joy of new creation. If there's anyone here, Lord, who's never put their faith in you for the first time, I pray that you would empower and open their eyes to see the grace of God offered to them. For those of us that have trusted in you, Lord, whether we have faced it, whether we will face it, we know that suffering will come. We know persecution will come. We know opposition and even inconvenience will come. Would you empower us by your spirit, by your work on the cross to be found faithful? Even if you should call us to die for our faith, would you empower us to be faithful? Help us, O oh God, we pray. Remind us, even in this moment, no matter what we face, that Christ is sufficient for us. That he is enough, no matter what circumstances of life we encounter. Help us, we pray and ask. In your name. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.